0: This is an oldie truth but a goodie. Uh, I wanted to say oldie but goodie. I had to put truth in there, which sort of threw off my, my rhythm of it. But this is one of those classic messages that has been given and given and given and regiven given at Ellerslie over the years. Uh, it's one of my favorite truths. It's one of the most important for us to constantly rehearse. And that's one of the things that we feel strongly about here at Ellerslie is that it's not just that, oh, well, you gave a sermon on that 14 years ago. It's sometimes certain truths have a revolution of, say, like every two years, and you'd be fine. If you heard that truth every two years, maybe that's okay. Other ones, it's in the year range where you have to at least give that message once a year. There are other messages that need to come out you know, quarterly. There's some that I'm going to sneak out almost weekly. Isn't that interesting just to think that there's certain truths that need that sort of repetition? There are certain truths in my life that I rehearse and preach to my soul daily. In fact, if I'm going to amp that up a little, there are certain truths that I'm going to preach to my soul all day long. And so I'll give you, if you're coming through the five week, you're going to get to know what those truths are. And because that's the central uh, theme of what we're going to teach at Ellerslie. And this is one of those oh you need to repeat it every few months type of a thing. I, I I think this is a truth you have to be holding on to all day long every day. But you know from the pulpit this is isn't it funny that we call this a pulpit? This is not really a pulpit as anyone would understand. But that's what a sermon comes from, right? So uh, guys, look at that uh, title: the end zone celebration dance. Uh, so, if any of you are football fans, then you understand that uh, there is a serious penalty. I mean, it's a personal foul, 15-yard penalty if you're going to do a celebration dance in the end zone anymore, because that's taunting the other team, which has led to some very creative dances lately. But in the years when I was growing up, celebration dance, you know, the spiking of the football, there's a jubilance because you have just accomplished something great, and so it's tough for all of us as fans not to see the celebration dances and to see them, you know, penalized. There's nothing better than a, than a player that risks the penalty and even you know, gets a $30,000 fine because he's willing to do uh, the dance for us. And you know we always enjoy that as, as football fans. I'm going to talk about something even better than that today, if you can imagine. This uh, message is given in memory of a very special friend of our ministry over the years, and that's Gretchen Trinkline, who passed away uh, can you guys remember when that was? Was it a year and a half ago or so? A year, a uh, year and a half ago. But uh, I remember Gretchen here during... The COVID lockdowns when Ellerslie was sneaking and uh, gathering together uh, in seat, we weren't announcing it. We were just sort of uh, huddling together because we had a job to do. We have to be the church, right? And we have something that needs to be accomplished. And we didn't want to be, you know, fearful of some pandemic uh, out there. We have, a, we have to spread the good news. We had some praying to do as the church. And so Gretchen uh, was in our midst. and. I think she was, I don't know if she had her health crisis yet, if she had uh, been diagnosed with her cancer at that time or not. But I still remember her prayer. And it became sort of a, a famous prayer at Ellers. I've prayed it many, many times. So I'm going give to you, give you guys the quote. Gretchen's prayer in 2020. Lord, hang Haman on his own gallows. You see, when there is a malevolent movement of evil against the truth, against the church, against those that God calls his it can feel very vulnerable because God's people have a tendency to look weak in the storyline. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. All throughout history, they never seem to have the strongest army. They seem to be the one that's sort of huddled together. And, you know, they, they, they look like they're pretty easy to overcome. And yet somehow in the storyline, if the same storyline, they win. And it's sort of the storyline of a sheep just in and of itself Because if we were to take a sheep, it's a fairly weak creature, right? And you wouldn't bet on the sheep over the wolf, if if you're smart, right? And no one's going to just say, I'm going to wager on the sheep in this one. Unless you study scripture and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So who's the sheep in this one? Yeah, I'm going with the sheep. That is because of something, though. It's not because a sheep is actually stronger than a wolf. It's because a sheep has a shepherd. And in all of these storylines, if you don't see the shepherd, then you're going to panic. But when you see the shepherd, you wager everything on the sheep. Not because the sheep are that impressive, but the sheep are loved by the shepherd, and the shepherd's really impressive. And that's the storyline of the gospel. That's the storyline of the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages. Haman is sort of that picture of the nemesis of the Jews, and he is going to concoct a scheme to destroy them all. And this is the book of Esther, if you guys remember. And in the end, Haman hangs on the very gallows that he erected to hang Mordecai on. I mean, it's a great story, guys. It's a total flip in the storyline. And so look at this prayer. Lord, hang Haman on his own gallows. So the spirit of Haman still exists today. It still desires to destroy that which is true, that which is righteous, that which God loves. And so our prayer can be, Lord, turn the storyline. The very gallows that Haman is erecting to hang the Jews or the chief Jew Mordecai on is the very penalty that they are going to receive. That's like, I don't know if you remember 2,000 years ago at the cross, but the enemy is going to erect a cross and he's going to, with bloodthirst and revilement and mockery, hang the Son of God on it. And it's going to look like he's winning. Isn't it going to look like, if you were just looking with natural eyes, it's like, the Messiah's going down. And yet, who went down? The devil's head was crushed in and through the very act of attempting to crush the Son of God. And that's, again, the storyline of the gospel. The six greatest end zone dances of all time. So I, I ranked them. I know this is just my opinion on the matter. And technically, I don't know that I agree with my, even my own opinion. I was just in a hurry. So the, first, the number six, I'm going to count down. The goalpost tackle mastered by the Steelers, Steelers' Antonio Brown, where he scores a touchdown and goes flying into the goalpost. It looked like it hurt, too, by the way. Uh, but it was very impressive. Uh, Number five, the Dirty Bird, which was mastered by the Falcons, uh, Jamal Anderson. And of course, I can't give the full dance here, you know, but if you were an Atlanta Falcons fan or were beaten by the Atlanta Falcons, you probably know uh, that dance. And it probably irritated you if you weren't a Falcons fan. Number four, the Icky Shuffle. I know it sounds rather disgusting, but there was a character named Icky Woods, and he played for the Bengals. And so uh, I don't really have a good picture of it. It was, you know, sort of like like this, if any of you remember uh, the good old days with uh, Icky Woods. Uh, Number three, the Pigeon Dance, which was mastered by the 49ers uh, Merton Hanks, which I guess Bert, remember Bert and Ernie? I guess Bert had you know, this, this pigeon dance that he did, and so Merton Hanks was imitating Bert uh, when, he, when he did it. Again, I, d- I don't have a great picture of it, but the, you have to sort of fill in the blanks on that one, but it was a great dance. And number two, the pylon putter, which was mastered by the Bengals' Chad Johnson, or uh, Ocho Cinco, uh 85, and so he came into the end zone, and took the pylon and putted the ball and it was quite a moment a uh, very elegant uh, form of uh, celebration and number one the te-tai-tai That's mastered by the church at Ellerslie. And so I have a, a picture at least to warm you up for what that looks like <laughs> All right, so I will Show you this dance as we progress, okay? But I'm not going to spoil anything to start with. But any of you, if you've gone through Ellerslie over the years, you've heard of the Te Tai Tai. Now, if I asked you what the Te Tai Tai was, you'd probably be like, I can't remember what that was. I just remember I laughed when it came out, right? And that's important because a good celebration dance should elicit. A chuckle, too. It really should. I mean, if it's all serious, you know, and you're like, <laughs> that's not as fun as the, as the guys hugging, laughing, you know, and doing a dance, you know, after they, they, they score. And that's sort of the way it is for us as believers. We need a dance. I don't know if you've ever heard that one video that uh, is called The Ancient War Cry. It's actually sort of a scary video if you watch it because my voice comes blaring on in this video and it's like, we need a war cry! And it actually scares me. I'm like, who, who edited it at that point? I mean, that's like scary. Uh, but that's sort of, if I could say the same, we need a victory dance. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, all the rest of the world has things like this. You know, they have war cries, they have victory dances, and we as a church are rather boring. You know, we sit around and go, hmm, amen, amen. <laughs> Meanwhile... We have the grandest adventure, the greatest victory that has ever taken place on earth, and we get to realize it day in and day out in our lives. It's high time we get our victory dance going. Esther 9, verse 25. When Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot, which Haman had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. And it's a great ending to the story. I mean, it's literally one of the coolest stories in the Bible is the book of Esther. So the art of dancing and leaping. To be honest, I'm not much of a dancer, leaper sort. Uh, When it came to the Broncos winning, it's interesting, but I was very animated. I would give high fives. I'd give hugs to people I didn't know. People would spill beer on me, and I would still get excited about it. I mean, the, the way you behave when you're excited about it, a sporting event is rather odd, and I still remember my mom coming in when I was cheering and moaning, groaning, yelling at refs, and, you know, and then screaming again at the top of my lungs, that my mom came in and she said, you know, Eric, um, wouldn't it be nice if you cheered that loudly for Jesus as you cheer for the Broncos? Talk about spoiling a moment, right? <laughs> and yet, I've never forgotten the statement that why is it that I feel comfortable cheering for something that is temporal, doesn't matter at all, even though some of you are like, what do you mean, take that back, Eric? What do you mean it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter at all. Sports and who wins, technically. I mean, yeah, you can learn some character through it, I'm sure, but in the whole scheme of the Eternals, it doesn't matter. And yet we will make fools of ourselves with excitement and enthusiasm. But what about the things that matter? Then we become all stoic and serious and put together. I'm the classic stoic put together guy, you know, tighten the tie. When it comes to Christianity, here I am the one giving this message too. It's like, Eric, I I think you're the wrong guy to give this message. No, I know. That's exactly right. I, I sort of am the wrong guy, but I sort of represent the rest of us that are like that that are sort of stiff when it comes to things like this, because that's just not how you express yourself when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. You know, you need to have more dignity. Here's David in his loincloth doing a dance. Talk about lacking dignity. And so for me, I have a tendency to be more reserved. And so when I am around a, a church that waves flags and does things like that, I tend to gravitate to the other side of the room. I'm not really inclined toward, if someone handed me a flag and said, could you run around the church while you worship? Uh, Is that a question? Like I can say no, because I wouldn't want to do that, right? I I still remember, uh, you know, the whole thing about hand raising in worship. Some of you come from churches where, you know, if that ever happened, you know, it'd be like, whoa, is that person from our church? What, What are they doing here? Because you're not, you don't do that, right? And I still remember, because I, I grew up in a Presbyterian church, and, you know, we, we had an order, and it was very respectful and honorable. You had some stained glass uh, there. And then when I was at missionary school, people were like, they were, they were moving. Uh, they had some gyration to their expressions. And I, I remember uh, I was standing there worshiping. I actually wanted to worship with gusto, because I I love Jesus, I do. But I didn't know what it looked like. And so I still remember someone, I never even saw their face, they whispered in my ear, I I really feel that God wants you to raise your hands to him. You know, I didn't want to even acknowledge that I saw, you know, and then later I sort of looked around, they weren't there anymore, and so I I don't have any idea who it was, right? But now I had this commission, and this is how it started. So if you're getting this via podcast, you're gonna miss some great movement in this message. (laughs) But it started with the, you know, this type of thing. you guys ever seen that sort of hand? It's like, and that's how it started. And have you ever risked it and actually raised your hands? Like actually bent the elbows? I mean, that's a scary thing. And what's funny is the moment you start doing it is you feel like everyone on earth is watching you. Like the, the whole, thing, everyone stops and they're looking at you like, do you see that guy? He just, he just did the elbow turn. And then usually we don't just go with two arms. Usually it's one. You, you do the one arm above the shoulder. When you start going above the shoulder, huge risk. I mean, you are like entering territory that you didn't even know could, you could go. I mean, this is like walking on the moon. Uh, and so, I, I mean, to be like this is a big deal, guys, I understand. Now, if you grew up in a church where you were like this from a young age and everyone was patting you on the back saying, well done, I'm sure it's totally different, but if you grew up stiff and stoic with your tie, you know pulled all the way up and as tight as you can get it, you understand what I mean by that. It's very hard to have expression into this realm of the kingdom of heaven to show Jesus this with our physical body and our form. It's like, whoa, this is awkward. And so my, uh, technically, if I could summarize where I'm going with this message, I don't really care if you raise your hands in worship or if you shout really loudly. That isn't my end game in this. It's that I want you to catch the vision of how great the victory is and let all the other stuff just fall into place, okay? If If he really is deserving of that, I'm willing to look a little undignified to make it clear. And that's part of the decision-making grid for Eric Ludi. I'm not doing this for you guys, I'm doing this for him. He is deserving of my love, my adoration, and my affection. If you snarl at me and say, you know, look at that guy. Sort of like Micah did David in his loincloth. And by the way, I, I don't want to be Micah. I don't want to look at someone who is expressing themselves to God and get all, you know, like, well, that's not the way I think it should be done. I truly want to always create an environment where people can be genuine. I also don't like it when people act it out, and they think that being more charismatic looks spiritual. I don't like that either. I'm looking for genuine. That's all that matters to me. The art of dancing and leaping. We are supposed to be proficient at it. Look at this story in Acts 3, 7 through 10. And Peter took the lame man by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Are people filled with wonder and amazement at what has happened to you? Because as far as I'm concerned, this should be the testimony of all of our lives. Peter is reaching down with the power of God Almighty in the name of Jesus he is going to touch this lame man and I think all of us in a certain sense can identify with the lame man in the story even though we're like well I'm, I'm not like physically lame yeah but spiritually I'm guessing you could understand what it means to be spiritually lame have you ever had it where you're like I really would love to do this or have this behavior but I can't seem to make it happen in my life you can esteem a behavior but you can't seem to model it yeah that's lameness but spiritually is probably the way that most of us have encountered that. We're spiritually lame, and we are, in a sense, begging for alms in the church. Like, is there a better way to live this life? Is there strength out there? And if you find that strength, and it reaches down and lifts you up, what should the reaction be in your soul? It's like, thank you. Thank you, sir. Shake hands. It's like, you know, you can now walk, and so then you go home and leap once you get home, because you don't want anyone to see it. You don't want to be undignified. This guy is going to leap. He's going to run around and leap, and everyone is going to take note and stand in awe. I'm just saying, there's something about this story that I think should link with us a little better. Do your ankle bones need strengthening? Maybe in your soul? that you're, You just don't have that ability to walk and to leap and to praise the Lord like this. Well, I I know someone who would maybe want to touch your life and get you walking and leaping and praising the Lord. So we live in a culture where the opposite of good news is what is dished out. You notice that? Now, I purposely avoid the news. It really does not help me. It seems to be like the enemy specializes in bad news. And if you watch the news, what the news networks specialize in is the same thing. It's bad news. What could make you fear? What could make you tremble? What could make you snarl and get angry? Oh well, yeah, that's about right. And so one of the good ways of describing it, especially what we as Christians have heard in the past years, is doom, gloom. I mean, that, those two words rhyme, yes, but they also go well together. Doom and gloom. What future do we have? I remember some of my kids were struggling with having a sense of a future. It's not because of anything less than I said to them. It's like, yeah, there's no hope in future. It's what was coming through. It's like even the zeitgeist of the age in, in 2020. If you're a young child, you feel like the world is coming to an end. If you, it, when we were in, here in Colorado, we had fires too. We had so many natural disasters in the year 20, uh, 2020. 2020 was a weird year. And I don't know if you guys can remember it or if you just blocked it out. Because some of us, that's our tendency. It's just like, I'm going to forget that year. It was so strange of a year. But we had uh, ash falling from the sky. So I remember coming out of Starbucks, my car was covered in ash. It looked like evening, midday. And so just imagine being a little kid. You feel like the world is coming to an end. And so if you feel like the world is coming to an end, it's sort of hard to have this sense of a future. Like, okay, I'm going to prepare now for... Okay, I'm going to prepare now for, well, if I don't have a future, what am I preparing for? It's an interesting impact upon the soul when suddenly something is eradicated known as your future and your hope. If you don't have a future and a hope, it it impacts you in, in how you approach your day. Because Proverbs 31 woman, it says she smiles at the days to come. Well, if you don't feel like you have any days to come, it's sort of hard to smile at them. So here's some quotes that you may recognize from the past years there is no hope for this country the economy is a ticking time bomb it's about to blow i've lost all vision for my life how do i plan for a future in which i'm in prison see as christians we've been told over and over again of how dark this world is getting yeah yeah we've heard this it's interesting because i'm not going to argue it's not like i'm going to say the opposite no 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 It's great. It's not that I'm going to argue that. It's just that we're focused on the wrong thing. I don't care where this world goes. We are fixed to something that doesn't change. It's known as Jesus Christ. And if he is going down the the tubes, if Jesus is falling apart, if his gospel power is melting away, you have every reason to panic. But what if nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? What if you are secure? What if he is a very present help in trouble? Because the conclusion of that is, therefore, we will not fear. If it's true what it says in scripture, you should have Zippo fear in your life. Proverbs thirty-one twenty-five: 25, strength and honor are her clothing. This is speaking of that one amazing woman, that virtuous woman strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. Here's two different translations for that. She can laugh at the days to come. She smiles at the future. How many of you are laughing at the days to come? You see, strength and honor are your clothing. One of the things we talk about in the five-week training is what our clothing is. We're supposed to put off Adam. We're supposed to put on Christ. We're supposed to wear him, as strange as that is, but we have clothing that is strong and it's honorable. And nothing can penetrate it. You have a shield that repels all the fiery darts of the evil one. And so you can laugh at the days to come. You can smile at the future. What a privilege you have as a believer. So I'm going to go through quite a few stories in this that all sort of show the same thing. Disaster in the natural realm and yet victory. So the first one isn't going to sound like much of a disaster, and that's part of the humor of the story. It's the lost axe head. The fact that the Bible even brings up this thing is actually sort of embarrassing. You know, we we feel a little awkward for the writers. Like, I I don't think you realize that that story is so pathetically small that it shouldn't be in this grand storyline of scripture. Because you know how many stories are not told in scripture? We're, We're going to eliminate you know, 99.99999999999999999999999 and you know add a billion more nines percent of all the stories that could be shared in all of history, and we're gonna get this one. It's like, uh guys, I think we missed this one. We're the editors on this one because how did this story sneak in? It snuck in because God wants you to see it. That's what I love about the Bible. If something is gonna sneak into the Bible, it didn't sneak in. God put it there. And it is the ideal story for you to understand. It is so small that God is going to say, yeah, like that. Even the smallest thing in your life, I'm going to get victory in it. The next story in Scripture right after this is one of the biggest stories in all of Scripture. Isn't that interesting? One of the smallest, most diddly-squat events in all of history is right adjacent to one of the biggest, most epic events in all of Scripture. And I think God wants us to see that. The smallest I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to bring victory there. Oh, the biggest? Yeah, same thing. In fact, I, I specialize in both. So the lost act said, what future do I have with that at the bottom of the Jordan River? Second Kings six, one through seven. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, this is that diddly squat, small story that we can't quite figure out why it's in the Bible. So the sons of the prophets are going to say to Elisha, see now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us please let us go to the Jordan and let, us, let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, go. And one said, please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. This is powerful, isn't it? I mean, they, they need a bigger spot to live and they're all going to carry a beam. And Elisha's going with them. That's as much as we know, right? I mean, I know you're on the edge of your seat right now. But as one was cutting down a tree, we don't even know the guy's name. He's one of the prophets, right? As one one of these young guys under Elisha, as one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Now here's where we want to say, all right, now, why are we focused here? Uh, Because it's a borrowed axe where the axe head goes flying off while they're building this house that really has no bearing on anything, right? Other than this little group of people and they're going to live in it someday. And this axe, is, axe head's is going to fall into the Jordan River. And you know what happens to an axe head in, a, in water, right? It's going to go to the bottom. Oh, no. It was borrowed. Now, here's my instinct. I want to say, all right, buddy, that was a mistake. These things happen. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to work really hard and save up some extra buckaroos. And I want you to buy an axe head to replace the one that just went into the Jordan River. You're going to learn some character through this. Right? I mean, that's a perfectly fine answer that still fits the rest of Scripture. Why do we need this story? Because God wants us to see that that act said matters, even the smallest thing that seems to be so irrelevant. So the next story in Scripture is going to be this one the Syrians surrounding. So the king of Syria is going to be really flustered because every time he makes a, a military move against Israel, Israel knows. And so one of his, counsel, his counselors are going to say, well, it's because Elisha it has some kind of connection with God and he knows exactly what you're doing. So like, take out Elisha. So they're going to take the entire Syrian army to come out against one man. Okay, this is epic. This is a lot bigger than an axe head that was borrowed falling into the Jordan River. So the Syrians surrounding, whether you have a small problem or a big problem, what future do I have with this mighty army seeking my destruction? So I don't care right now if your problem is axe head level or if it's Syrian army level. It doesn't make any difference in the kingdom of heaven. God wants to take it seriously in your life and God wants to bring victory in that exact spot. 2 Kings 6, 14 through 23. Therefore, the king of Syria sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, so this is his, Elisha's servant saying to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So do you notice how so I'm, I'm leaving you hanging on all these stories? It's like, oh, no, we just have disaster after disaster after disaster. I mean, it doesn't look good, guys. And that's precise. This is the doom and gloom. We can look at scripture and just focus on the doom and gloom. It's like, oh, no, and these guys are in a terrible situation. Borrowed axe head in the Jordan River? Oh, no, it was borrowed, right? And it's, oh, no, the king of Syria is surrounding the city. Elisha has nowhere to go. What's going to happen, guys? And then pause. And it's like, on the next episode of Eric Ludi's sermons, we will unveil for you what happened. Oh, sorry, guys. I went too fast. Haman's plot to exterminate. Now, unfortunately, you already sort of know because of how this message started of what's going to happen in this story, but I want you to act like you don't. Okay. What future do I have with this king signing a decree for my elimination? If you're a Jew, there is literally a kingly decree that is going to annihilate you. You're going to be destroyed. Uh, And there's no hope, right? If it's like the most powerful nation of the world is coming to get you. Well, what kind of future do you have? Here's Esther 3, 9 through 11. Then Haman said, if it pleases the king, you always need to have sort of a syrupy voice for Haman. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that the Jews be destroyed. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you. To do with them as seems good to you. Oh, no, say it isn't so. It is, guys. It's a dark day for the Jews. What kind of future do they have? How about this one, guys? Now, of course, you do know that something is going to happen here, but I'm not going to give it away yet. The Savior's suffering on a cross. What future do I have if my one source of salvation is pinned to a cross and breathed his last? Oh, no! I mean, no, not Jesus. He was come to save us. Now, all the Jews thought he was going to destroy the Roman Empire. They like had it figured out. Instead, he's going to die. This isn't looking good, guys, because he was the one who was going to stand between us and Rome. He was going to set us free. Well, he was coming to work something far bigger than setting you free from the hand of the Roman Empire. John 19, 17 through 18. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. This is looking really bad, guys. I mean, if you're staring at what I'm talking about, you came in a little depressed, now you're even more depressed. It's like, what? Eric, what kind of stories are these you're picking? Yeah. See, this is how the enemy always wants to craft his storyline as well. It's like, look, guys. There's no future and hope for you. Now, if you know your Bible, you're going to recognize that there's a lot more to these stories, right? And there's a turn in the storyline. It's like a great movie. A great movie has to go dark, then get darker and get darker. It has to like dig a hole. It seems impossible to climb out of. And a great satisfying movie or storyline always gets you to the point where there's no hope, there's no way out, and then somehow you get out, right? And that's satisfying. I think God came up with that because he seems to like these same storylines. I think he's the one that designed it in the first place. The dark night of the soul. This is where Christianity is proven genuine or fake. So historically, we don't know exactly what the root was of the term, the dark night of the soul. Usually it's given to, uh, you know, credited to a man named St. John of the cross. But it's a statement to describe a process that we go through as believers, where we have to face an impossible situation for Jacob, he is going to be in an impossible situation. Esau, his brother, who has declared that he's going to kill him next time he sees him, has 300 armed men and he's waiting for him in the very direction that Jacob is taking his company. And Jacob has no weapons. He has a whole bunch of women and children and cattle. He has no hope against Esau. And so he is going to slip away. He's going to divide his party into two companies so that they can maybe one, if, if he attacked Esau attacks one, the other could get away. And then he's going to go off by himself that night and he's going to wrestle with God. And this story is actually such a pivotal part of all of history because Jacob is symbolic of us when we're in that destitute, desperate place. Well, what are we going to reach out for? You know what Jacob even means? It means heel grabber. He's going to grab the wrong thing all of his life. When he's coming out of the womb, he's going to grab uh, Esau. And then he's going to think Esau has what he needs. And so he's going to you know, con Esau into giving him you know, his birthright. And then he's going to con his dad into giving him the blessing. He's still going to be bereft of whatever he's after. He still doesn't have something. And then he finally learns to grab the right thing. He grabs God. And he says, I will not let go until I get what you have. And that is the change point. He's going to become Israel in that moment. And we, those that come to Christ and believe in Christ and hold on to Christ, are true Israel. We are of that same lineage, that same deportment, that same faith. That when it goes dark, we learn where to go. And we grab a hold of God and we see the storyline change. For Jacob, the storyline changes that night. And the next day, Esau hugs him and lets him through. It's like, whoa, talk about an unexpected turn to the storyline. So 1939, it's it's funny because uh, David Coleman, who gave the devotional, said if he could go back to any time in history, it would be 1940. And I'm thinking, oh, that's that's ironic considering what I'm talking about today. Now, I'm not really talking about this. I just have to come up with an excuse to get a little World War II uh, in the message. So the sinking act said in 1939, Great Britain is the only country standing against Hitler. And it looks dark. France has gone down. The United States is licking its wounds. It's still in the Great Depression and has no interest. In fact, all of the, uh, even the ambassadors from Great Britain uh, come back to the United States and say, yeah, don't help them. They're gonna, they're gonna uh, fall to pieces before the German empire in two weeks. And so it, it looks like it's totally lost. And that's right when uh, Winston Churchill gets his assignment as prime minister. It Doesn't that sound like something God would do for us? It's like you always dreamed of being prime minister, and then the time you finally get the opportunity is in the darkest moment. And so uh, this is what Winston Churchill says. Great Britain was deemed by Mussolini a frightened, flabby old woman. I have always enjoyed that quote. Uh, and if you happen to be a frightened, flabby old woman, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to liken you to Great Britain. Uh, Winston Churchill when he's addressing the German ambassador who's trying to intimidate him, basically like just surrender. And he is going to say, don't underestimate England, sir. I love that statement because that's what I want to say about the church of Jesus Christ. We look so pathetically weak right now. I'm just being as honest as I can. I am not impressed when I look around and I see the church today. I'm not like, wow, we've got our game on. No, I feel like we're off balance. I feel like the enemy's been bullying us around and we're buying it. And we're not exerting the authority that we have. We look weak. But I want to say to the uh, German ambassador or whatever ambassador that would be that's trying to intimidate the church today, just be silent. Just play the game the way we've taught you to. Be socially correct and you're not going to have any problems. Don't underestimate the church, sir. Don't underestimate what Jesus Christ desires to do in us and through us in this world. So 1940 is a year of transformation. This is going to be the year that Great Britain gets its game on. And it is so profound that there in history, it's going to be called the greatest generation ever. And yet 1939, you've never seen a more pathetic generation, which I think is encouraging to all of us. I would like to be considered the greatest generation ever. Why not? But right now, we do not look like it. Let me just say it that way. We're 1939 Great Britain. So, the intervention of the divine, the awakening world, the exceedingly great army. I love these quotes because this just fits with what we're talking about. Winston Churchill said, It is a curious fact about the British islanders who hate drill and have not been invaded for nearly a thousand years, that as danger comes nearer and grows, they become progressively less nervous. When it is imminent, they are fierce. When it is mortal, they are fearless. These habits have led them into some very narrow escapes. This is during the first attacks on the German airplanes while down in the bomb shelters. So this is called the Battle of Britain when the Luftwaffe, the German uh, air force is going to bomb London and London has no defense. They can't do anything. There's no anti-aircraft guns at this time. And so they're just literally taking it. Everyone, this is speaking of the uh, British people or I could say the church because that's, that's what I'm ultimately paralleling here. Everyone was cheerful and jocular as is the English manner when about to encounter the unknown. What is our manner when we're about to encounter the unknown? Oh, no, no. What do do we do? I want to take a cue from Great Britain in 1940. I want us to get our game on. The glory of old England, peace-loving and ill-prepared as she was, was but instant and fearless at the call of honor, thrilled my being and seemed to lift our fate to those spheres far removed from earthly facts and physical sensation. So Ezekiel 37, I know that's quite a jump. We, we go from 1940 to suddenly Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, for some of you, it might even be your favorite chapter in the Bible, even though the book of Ezekiel is a complete uh, confusion to you, right? But there's something about Ezekiel 37 that you get. And that is what's typically called the Valley of Dry Bones, even though there's more going on in Ezekiel 37. And I'm, I'll just read at least a, a little segment, one through three. The hand of the Lord came upon me, And brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. And it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley. And indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, "Uh, oh, Lord God, you know. Great answer. Can these bones live? First of all, these are human bones. Bones, that's not a good sign, guys. That means death. Death rules here. The signs of death, the effects of death are ruling here. Can these bones live? You see, this is a dark moment. If this is your army, if this is what we have to work with, it's it's sort of a sad state of affairs. It's almost like I don't want to describe the church as just a pile of dead bones. It might not be the most accurate description of it. But I think we can identify with the fact that if God were to come to me and say, hey, Eric, do you believe the church of Jesus Christ can turn the tide in this culture today? Do you you believe that it can awaken and revive and actually show forth the power of God in this generation? Uh, Oh, Lord, you know. Now, I do know that that's what God wants to do, and I do believe, but I understand exactly what Ezekiel might be dealing with here. He's staring at bones going, bones don't usually fight good battles by themselves. There's going to be something needed in this storyline. And if you know the story, it's pretty extraordinary. They're all going to clatter together and they're going to become something an exceedingly great army. But in Ezekiel 37, right after that story, well, actually, I just said the exceedingly great army. That's what I just said. And then I thought I was going to this slide. Ezekiel 37, the two sticks. So right after this story, there's this other story, which is really strange, just like the rest of the book of Ezekiel. I mean, the whole whole thing is rather strange. It's like a trip to Narnia. And it's going to talk about two sticks, and I'm going to read it for you. Ezekiel 37, 15 through 17. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and ride on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. I know, that's sort of like, okay, what in the world is that supposed to be? These sticks are joining together, and they become one. And you're going to see the rest of this passage is talking about the work of the Messiah to come and bring a wholeness, to bring a healing to this land, to this people. And it's so clearly talking about Jesus Christ and this exact thing. And it's going to talk about two sticks coming together. And it's through those two sticks coming together, that's the symbol of how this healing is going to happen. Okay? I could say it this way. How's that exceeding great army going to be raised up? Two sticks coming together. Okay? And I don't know if you're catching what two sticks coming together means. I mean, if you have the visual, you're at least seeing it because I'm putting it in the shape of a cross. So you don't miss it. However, that's a profound statement. So the sinking axed, the eights thrown into the Yardane. Does that make sense for you? Uh, Probably not. Okay. But the secret to that axed, that axed is going to sink. And I think I have the story here. Well, I I, I think I have it in the next one. Yeah, here, I'll go back. So I'll do this slide and then I'm going to go back one, Andrew. Okay. 2 Kings 6, 1 through 7, but as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe had fell into the water, and he cried out and said, alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. Okay, that's a diddly squat little small story, but with a profound statement. Okay, now I'm going to go back a slide. Eights is the word for stick. That same word for stick is going to be used for branch. It's going to be used for wood. It's going to be used for gallows. All of which are very prominent in the Old Testament to declare something specific, which you're going to see a lot of Jesus in and a lot of cross in. And then Yardin, Jordan, the Jordan River, the the Hebrew word is Yardin. The outpour, the descendant, the one coming down. So the one coming down, wood. Okay, we have a symbol of something right here. We have a picture of the one who's going to come down, Jesus, and we see a symbol of a stick. I know a stick isn't the way we would typically describe the cross, but you need to use your imagination, obviously, is what the Holy Spirit is saying. Come on, guys, work with me, is what the Holy Spirit's saying. Because this is his symbol of the redemption of Jesus Christ, even in the Old Testament, even for something as small as an ax that was borrowed. So, uh, oh, by the way, I, now I'm going back to this one. Eights, oh no, I, by the way, I was just at this one, sorry guys. Uh, now I'm going to this one. So here's our statement, the eights thrown into the yardane. Okay, now I don't know if you guys can see the letters on the side, Te Tai Tai. Now I don't know if you remember te Tai Tai, but it's a victory dance. Okay, now you at least can interpret it. So, Tay-Tay-Tay, I'm trying to think of how to get the dance going, but I've had multiple dances over the years. One of them is my tensile strength dance, which is probably similar, and then I've also had the, I call it the Greg Brady dance from the Brady Bunch. Uh, and so they all sort of go together. It's like, Tay-Tay-Tay. Okay, now you can actually invent your own version of it, but it is the greatest victory dance. Did you notice I even ranked those celebratory dances and what came in first? Te-tai-tai, that's how powerful of a dance this is. It's even better than the icky shuffle, okay? So te-tai-tai, God in and through his Holy Spirit turning what the enemy means for evil into good by supernaturally wielding the cross of Christ. The eights thrown into the Yardin, making something impossible happen. That is the victory of Jesus throughout the ages. Te-tai-tai. And so guess what? You can actually do the dance now, even though the victory hasn't yet been seen. And that is the great mystery of our faith is that we can see a victory even in the darkest moment. And we can do our victory dance even though it looks like defeat right in front of us. Welcome to Christianity, guys. When the menacing Syrians come and they surround, what are you guys gonna do? You know what Elisha is going to do? Take that day. That's what he's going to do. Now, he didn't call it that, but just watch. I mean, this is ridiculous, guys. 2 Kings 6, 14 through 23. Therefore he, speaking of the king of Syria, sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. His servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, listen to Elisha's answer. Talk about doing a little dance. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What has Elisha seen? Because he has one guy with him. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. This is an entire army. Now, remember, when you see the army, what's your feeling? What's your sensation naturally? Panic. What was Elisha's? He knows God's greater. So he's at total rest, even though he's surrounded by an army because he sees mountains full of horses and chariots of fire all around him. And with one word, he blinds them. Now, Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you, speak, whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria, which was the capital of uh, the northern province of Israel. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and they, that there were, they were inside Samaria. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them, and after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master, which was the king of Syria. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Talk about changing an entire storyline. And it starts with a man who sees, almost like he's seeing the ending before it even happens. He sees the final chapter before it even starts. All, all we see is the surrounding horde of Syrian raiders. When there is a valley of dead men's bones, so you walk into a valley of dead men's bones, that's a strange time to do a little te tai tying. And yet, do you believe that God is able? So when God says to you, can these bones live? Yes, Lord, they can. When Haman issues threats of extinction, these are hard moments, guys, and there's going to be many hard moments in your lives where it doesn't seem like you can even get out of bed. The oppression is so heavy upon you. But this is when the victory dance is most required. This is the dark night of the soul where you grab a hold of God and say, God, I know you have victory. I know you turn this storyline. When Jesus is pinned to the eights, to the sticks, te tai tie When you're staring at a man who is covered in blood, he is dying, he's going to breathe his last. That's a hard moment to see victory in the natural. And yet you all, because you know the word of God, know that in that moment is the greatest victory of all time. So what looks like defeat in the natural is actually a victory, but it depends on which glasses you're wearing. You have to get your te tie tie on. You need to be able to see it through the lens of heaven, not through the lens of this earth. Matthew 28, 6, he is not here for he is risen, as he said. See, our God has said a lot of things. And if you were to listen to those things, you're not going to be caught off guard by the fact that he's risen from the dead. He promised he would on the third day. Don't you remember that? You might as well be tay 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 long before this because he's already told you. He's going to be turned into the hands of sinners. He's going to die on a cross. He's going to be buried and he's going to rise again in three days. Why don't we just take him at his word? You see, our eyes need to be open to see the mountains full of horses and chariots all around. We're not seeing it. Romans eight twenty eight. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If you know that, then you can do the dance even now. te tai tai staring at the impossibilities and superimposing Jesus on top of them. Lord, open our eyes that we would see, that we would see horses and chariots of fire all around. If you could see horses and chariots of fire all around you right now, wouldn't it cause you to maybe relax a little? Maybe even get a little smirk on your face. Maybe even tap your foot to a beat. Maybe even notice like the beauty of the clouds, the shape of the clouds. again. Remember when you were little, you used to lay on the grass and look at clouds? Now you're so busy, so determined to you know, somehow survive that you've forgotten all the beauties of life. Maybe even the, the sound of a, a rushing brook you know, or a babbling brook It's like, ah, how nice. Maybe even start singing some songs to yourself as you're driving down the street in your car. Because... You know that someone else is in control, and it doesn't have to be you. That even though the Syrians are out there and they're threatening, guess what? Uh, My God is greater. So if I have mountains, if the mountains are full of horses and chariots all around, and my God's in total control, and he's promised to never leave me nor forsake me, and he's a very present help in my troubles, well, then why should I fear? Why should I fret? This is, and so some of you have the, you know, maybe the, the tapping foot, Maybe you have a little tune that's coming out of your mouth. I'm just saying you could potentially consider upgrading that to a little dancing, right? I know, it's hard, especially for people like me that don't do a lot of dancing, right? Uh, So it might be a little awkward to, you know, it might start with a... something like that, okay? It doesn't need to be the full movement, right? It might just be a... I see, this is how it works, guys. Get that foot tapping and you might get your te tai tie going. te tie radically believing that Jesus will turn even this into a wondrous work of triumph. I want you to think of your even this. You know that when I look at your life, it's pretty easy for me to see how God could turn it all to good. It's usually that I struggle with my own stuff. It's it's always harder to imagine how God could take my even this and somehow make it work. You ever notice that, that it's harder? Just like your own relatives, it's harder to imagine God reaching them, like your brother and your sister, your mom and your dad, whatever it is. It's harder. It's easier for you to imagine my parents or my brother and sister being radically reached for Jesus than it is yours. That's normal, okay? That's just how it works. And yet I want you to circle your even this, and I want you to consider Getting a little te tay going. I want you to begin to believe in your God that he is greater. And that he has given you this burden and this desire to see the Syrian army blinded. And that's his desire. He desires to see victory. He desires to see axe heads float. He desires to see the transformation of lives. This is on his heart, not just on yours. Practicing processing like a Christian. So it's an awkward thing to have two ing words in a row but we're gonna practice something and we're gonna practice processing like a Christian. So here's some practice thoughts. I have a future and a hope. I know, that's like a, a major exercise. It's sort of like saying the mountains are full of horses and chariots of fire all around. I have a future and a hope, why? Because I'm in Christ. And that's how the truth works. You see, Christ has a future and a hope. I don't know if you've ever figured that one out and I'm in him. I share his future. I am going to boldly live and boldly expect God to steer me through this ever-growing minefield. I believe God has great things in store for my life. I believe that every challenge I face only makes my testimony stronger for Jesus and only causes my witness to increase for his glory. So I'll be introducing the students to this phrase, and any of you you that have hung around Ellerslie know this phrase. It's just a classic Ellerslie phrase. It's one that I've used many times. In my darkest moments of even this, I have learned to whip this out, and it it helps me immensely. Watch what my God will do. When all seems impossible, that's what I declare. Watch what my God will do. And you could say, who are you talking to, Eric? Well, I'm talking to myself. But I'm also talking to the highest heaven and the lowest hell and anyone that wants to listen in. I'm making a statement, a declaration of my faith. I know my God is going to prove victorious right here, even in this situation. Hanging Haman. So how do we do it? How do we see that which Haman is conspiring come back on his own head? We tie 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 in every situation. See, we have weapons of warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Do you know that when it says that, it doesn't tell you what the weapons are? It just says that we have them. One of your weapons, I mean, I could call it your weapon of te tie tie. And that's true. It, in the Bible, it doesn't say it that way. However, it's going to say to leap for joy, it's going to say rejoice. And again, I'm going to tell you, rejoice. You see, there's something about actually taking a difficult moment and believing with your little te tie tie dance. That actually is a weapon against your enemy. It actually disables your enemy. It's like his weaponry falls from his hands. He doesn't have the ability to combat when you do what God has asked you to do. So we take tie tie in every situation. We remember that God takes the junk, the bad stuff, the evil intent, the lies and malevolence of the enemy, and converts it through his work on the cross. Esther 9:25. When Esther came before the king, He commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the eights. Translated, gallows. And when Nathan talks to you about those gallows, you'll realize that it's even more profound than you even realize right now. But I'm not going to steal the thunder from that. This is a work and a picture of the redemption of Jesus Christ way back in the Old Testament. And we're going to see clearly that our God wins. And so in your situation, in your life right now, you have even is that you could circle and say, well, but I mean, I could understand how God could do this, 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 and this, but oh, but this, this is too much for him. And that's where I want you to allow the spirit of God to go after in your life. I, I want you to hear the confidence of the voice of Elisha. When he's like sipping his coffee early in the morning, you know, he's reading his paper and his, his servant's like, uh, master, we got a problem out here. He goes, what's the problem? I don't see a problem. All I see is a mountain, mountains full of horses and chariots of fire. I mean, well, those that are with us are greater than those that are with them. What are you seeing? Because that's the facts. You know, I've done the math on the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. Lucifer, Satan, the devil is going to steal one third of, of the angelic host, right? He's gonna take one third with him. Now for all of you that are mathematicians, how many more angels does God have than the devil has demons? He has double. He has double the angelic force and get this guys, he's God. So who you voting on? Just on that, if it was just God and the enemy took all of the, the angels, if he took all of them, he's God. We serve a God who is victorious, who is poised to win. The question is, are we going to side with him or are we going to cower in a corner? I want to side in faith with the living God right now. No matter how dark it gets in this world, I want to be standing with him. And I want to invite us as a church to get that celebratory end zone dance in gear. You know, I I know that some of these football players are practicing in front of the mirror. You know, before they go onto the field, they're they're practicing their dances. You know, because they don't want to get out there and look like a fool, right? So they're practicing. Maybe we should start practicing our celebratory end zone dance. This is our opportunity, guys. Some of you are like, there is no way, Eric, that I'm doing that dance. I can, I can understand. You can come up with your own dance, and I'm sure it's going to look a lot better than, the, than my version of the tay Tai Tai dance. But until I see a better version, guys, mine's the ruling champion. Okay, and we could have a competition, sort of like the Olympics of tay Tai Tai, <laughs> and we could vote, and maybe we come up with who has the, the best tay Tai Tai dance. Could you imagine, even after all that, mine wins? Right now, I'm the only contestant. So, as of right now, mine's ruler. I'm challenging you all to come up with your own Te Tai Tai dance. Father, we want to laugh again. We want to smile again in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, get our foot a stomping, get our mouth a humming, get our body a dancing. Lord, we have the victory of Jesus Christ. The eights has been thrown into the Jordan. And may the supernatural evidence of the kingdom of heaven be realized in each of our lives as individuals and as a corporate body. Lord, we are expectant to see what you will do and how you will do it. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.